You are the one that we are after. We're not after fancy words or um, fun graphics. We're after you. I pray that you would come through Alec, that you would fill him, that you would empower him, that you would um, use him um, in, in your love. Pray, Lord, that we would hear you, hear your words, uh, hear your word, Jesus Christ. Uh, we ask these things through the, the power and the life um, that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, this is, um, this is a little weird because we haven't been um, back to worship with you guys on a Sunday morning in some time. But um, yeah, and to just, I don't know, hand me a microphone. Are you, are you sure? As Peter said, we've been at the Catholic Church for a while now, uh, but this is our spiritual family, so obviously it's just really good. But for those who don't know us, I'm Alec. Um, we were part of the Vineyard since 2007. Thank you very much, yes. And uh, yeah, you're our spiritual family. It's great to be back with you guys. So, um, Even though we used to be around a lot more, what, what we did come aware of is uh, that you're going through this series from James Bryan Smith's book, um, The Good and Beautiful God. And so I'm just going to jump right into that series uh, as Gordy was preparing to take off that um, uh, I was assigned chapter 7, God is self-sacrificing. How are we supposed to understand that? What does it mean for us who, supposedly anyway, are seeking to be discipled more and more into the image of God? You know, what does it mean to be discipled into this God, the God who is self-sacrificing? What does that look like for us? The key passage I want to serve as a launch pad for whatever else I might say is this one from Matthew 20. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we ask again for your spirit and your spirit's empowering presence here in this place. Lord, thank you for your heart to this church, your heart of love, and thank you that it has good roots here. Your love has been planted and there is so much life. I ask God that your, your word would grow in us, that we'd be, we would be attentive listeners. So spirit come, fill us now. Give us every grace, God, to grow in you and to be made more and more like you. Thank you for your son who's given us such a perfect image of what your heart is like. And we ask for the, um, just the fortitude to stand with him in this world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Are any of you familiar with this book, Silence, by Shusaku Endo? It was written in the 60s. Um, I'll give you a brief premise about it. 
I actually haven't finished reading it. I started page one a little while ago, but I've heard a lot about it, and I heard a report about it recently at a, term, at a, a class at Regent last term, and it made an impression on me what this guy said about it. So I've, I've double-checked my, my references in a few places, but uh, yeah, a really interesting story, especially because of today's topic. So the book is set in Japan in the 17th century when Christian missionaries who had previously seen a lot of success in their evangelism of Japan, they're coming under persecution. And historically, what happened was that Japan's leaders were kind of tricked into thinking that missionaries were a bit more like spies for competing empires who wanted to come take over Japan. And of course, they were told this by leaders of one of those empires. So anyway, um, I think it was Spain or Portugal. Japan basically adopted an, an insular policy in terms of its uh, domestichood. Um, it, it, it closed itself off to foreigners. Um, and because of that perception, it also declared Christianity must be crushed by expelling foreigners and torturing Christians until they apostatized. One of the methods they developed in order to force recantations among Christians was the Fumie Stone. Here's a picture of one that's, um, that still remains from this time period. And the idea was that if Christians wanted to avoid being burned alive or um, tied upside down in a pit until they recanted with the one hand that they could move or thrown out to sea, all they had to do was step on a picture of Jesus so as to renounce their faith. And the word fumie actually means stepping on stone. Uh, stepping on picture. And that's the setting for this book by Endo. Climax of the book is when this priest, missionary priest, Father Rodriguez, he's captured by Japanese authorities and is facing his own execution. And throughout this book, we're given glimpses into his internal thoughts about suffering and self-sacrifice. And at the start of his journey, he's kind of romantic about the possibility that he might get to suffer for Christ. In some ways, he's actually anticipating his execution. It's like this glorious act of courage and self-surrender. But once he's in prison, his perspective begins to change. He hears these sounds from down the hall, and they sound kind of like chainsaw sounds or mechanical sounds to him, and it really irritates him because he's trying to enter into prayer. You know, he's, he's distracted by these sounds, and he's trying to really feel the moment of his coming martyrdom. And he's trying to pray and be, you know, one with Jesus. And all these sounds keep irritating his prayer life. So he asks his cellmate what those sounds are. And he's told, those are the Christians in the pit moaning, actually. Those are your parishioners suffering for you. And so the next day, his captors bring him to the pit to see his brothers. And he's forced to make this incredible choice. If he will recant... If he'll only stomp on the face of his Lord, the Christians in the pit will be released. And to make this more complex, as I said, these are his own parishioners. So his captors want him to renounce his faith, proving how empty Christianity is of its substance. But his recantation would also save their lives. If he doesn't recant, he'll just join them which is a shocking turn of events for Rodriguez, and that's what we're dealing with in this book. He, he's been preparing himself to suffer for his own faith, and he'd been secretly hoping that he'd be called to follow Christ in complete self-sacrifice. So he didn't count on this. What's he going to do? 
As he stares into the face of Christ on the Fumier stone, he actually hears the voice of Christ speak. He hears Jesus say to him, Trample. I more than anyone know of the pain in your foot. Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried the cross. Now, I'm not going to spoil the story for you, partly because I think it's more interesting to leave things right here. If you don't want to read the book to find out what happens, just wait a year and you can go see the movie because Martin Scorsese is directing a film version of this, this book, which is what I'm going to do. <laughs> just kidding. I own the book. I just haven't looked at it. Anyway, Christ tells Rodriguez, it was to be trampled on that I was born into this world. Not much different from what Matthew records Jesus as saying, for the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came for this. God is self-sacrificing. But there's a few things we might want to add here because on its own, saying that God is self-sacrificing is still kind of vague. And what I want to do now for the remainder of our time is draw out three ways we might want to add to this chapter title, God is Self-Sacrificing, just to make it clearer about what our discipleship in the way of Christ might look like. So the first way is this. God is self-sacrificing, but self-sacrifice is not inherently godlike. And the point I'm trying to make here might at first seem kind of trivial, like just semantics, but actually it's pretty important. It's what differentiates a Christian view of self-sacrifice from, say, Islamic extremism. Because Christ didn't come here seeking execution, as if death were inherently glorious. Rather, he approached his death in obedience to the Father, accepting it as part of the mission the Father had given him. He didn't do it like Father Rodriguez, who at first anyway actually hoped to be made an example of courage and valor in the face of death and danger. Christ was first and foremost obedient to the will of the Father. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, he actually prays not to have to undergo this trial that's about to ensue. If it's at all possible, Father, that I don't have to do this, let it pass from me. But, he says, not what I want, but what you want. I surrender myself in your hands. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And in this way, it's the obedience of Jesus to the will of the Father that makes his death glorious. Because it is. But it's that obedience that undergirds it that makes him worthy of our imitation. Even more, with this whole movement of Christ's mission on earth in view, it is the incarnation itself. That shows us God's self-sacrificial nature. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, where he exalts Christ as our example. The one who, despite being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Oops, excuse me. I meant to include that Philippians 2 passage. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. And he became obedient. Paul says, even unto death. Not looking for death, but as much as being obedient, even if it meant death. All for the sake of love. And I'm stressing this point, I think, 
I'm not sure why I was tempted to stress this point so much this week, but I, I, I want to stress it because it is very tempting these days, especially, I think, to try and find meaning in suffering itself, to look for the meaningfulness of our suffering, quite apart from what we might otherwise do with it before God. Uh, let's be careful, because I think from a Christian perspective, suffering itself has no meaning. It's destruction, and God hates it. The world as he would make it doesn't include suffering. The world he's restoring is defined by peace, where love doesn't need a fight in order to prove itself as love. Of course, this doesn't mean that in this fallen world, God can't use suffering to bring about good. Thank God, Scripture promises he'll do just that. But what's interesting is that's a miracle. That's a turn of events. The greatest miracle of all would be that despite the tragic horror of our crucifying God, he would find a way to bring us all life. And if I'm not being clear enough here, consider these words um, by someone who I think is really helpful on this point, David Bentley Hart. And he, what he's responding to as a preface is uh, a tendency in books of theology uh, to, to try and gloss suffering as if it were inherently beautiful. Well, there's something beautiful about the tragic that, that, uh, that speaks of Christian faith. And what he says is interesting as a kind of a, a rejoinder. It's not the beauty of the cross, but of the one crucified that's rescued at Easter. God's judgment vindicates Christ, his obedience unto death, but not the crucifixion. It's kind of like that statement, God is love. True enough. But we live in a culture that would much rather prefer the reverse. Love is God. Not for us. That's called idolatry. So to here, God is self-sacrificing, but self-sacrifice by itself does not get you closer to God, no matter how much we might think it should, no matter how self-righteous we become after we've given and given and given, as if in and of itself, such sacrifices mean God owes us something. And that leads straight to a second point. If we are able to see God's, Christ's death as meaningful, which we are, we're invited to do that, if, if we have found this perspective whereby his death is truly beautiful, it's not because of the death, but because of the way this death has been transformed by the one crucified. It's because of the purpose that lies behind it. As Matthew says, he came to give his life as a ransom, as a ransom for many. With us in mind, Christ endured the otherwise meaningless suffering of the cross. And so, God is self-sacrificing. But the kind of sacrifice that God performs is always selfless, subject to the law of unconditional love. In other words, God is self-sacrificing for the sake of others. It's not self-referential. And the reason I bring this point up is very clear to me. And it's because I'd say for most of us, we find it easier to be self-sacrificial when we know we're going to get something in return. Our self-sacrifice is, ironically, often quite self-serving. There are strings attached. 
uh, Crystal and I were watching King of Queens on YouTube the other day, because that's what we do at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, we've seen every episode twice, and we still can't stop watching King of Queens. I think it's because it's comforting just because we know it, and the humor's so cheap. It's great. <laughs> By the end of the day with three kids, you know, we used to watch Just for Laughs, because uh, that's an even better way to turn into a laughing vegetable. But... Uh, you know, like just for laughs, you can watch five minutes, you can watch 45 minutes. It doesn't matter. You jump in, you jump out. There's, once you got the plot of the gag that they do, they just repeat it over and over. So it's really, really great brainless entertainment. Uh, but King of Queens, like when we're ready to up the ante on, on uh, entertainment value and ready for an 18-minute narrative, we watch King of Queens. And uh, <laughs> the other night we watched one where Doug and Carrie, they give like $500 as a donation to their friend's elementary school library. And when the plaque's revealed in the library of who gave what with all the donors' names on it, you know, they had given enough of a gift to be patrons up at the top where there's only a couple of names. But instead, they were looking and they, like, all the way down where, with all these other chumps, just friends, they find their names. And they couldn't let it go. At one point, they're arguing about whether they're going to fight for their recognition of what they gave or whether they'll go to hell or not. <laughs> and Carrie says, I'm not evil, I'm petty. <laughs> and it's kind of impressive because they actually go to a church to see a professional on, on moral right and wrong, and he tells them, in a perfect world, charity is its own reward. And I thought, man, that's pretty great for primetime TV in 2001. Like, yeah, because it was like 2001 when that episode came out, but that was pretty good for then. And the point is this, we may not often be truly evil, but we are petty. We keep track of our sacrifices, maybe just the big ones, but probably the small ones too. And we ought to know better because such a tendency is not godlike. It's just evidence of our immaturity in spiritual things. Our four-year-old is the family accountant on who's done what for who and what that means for future rewards. I am so glad God's not a four-year-old. <laughs> and when Christ descended in our flesh and he showed us the self... Is Jocelyn in here? No, good. Okay. And showed us the self-sacrificial heart of God. Scripture says he did it for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is that? The joy that having given away everything for the sake of love, there'd be an open invitation that we, too, might experience the love he had already experienced perfectly in its perfection before he even willed to be made in our flesh. Unbelievable. That's the kind of self-sacrifice we must learn to imitate, not pettiness. And it's what's behind James's encouragement to us. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I mean, is that just so much BS? What is that? Really? Could it really be possible to live like that? I think so. But only if we let ourselves be disciplined 
and discipled in the way of Christ. We must learn and practice to no longer feel victimized by reality, but instead to be empowered in the face of reality that we've been given with joy, excuse me, with joy in our hearts, with gratitude on our lips, so we can actually say, thank you, Jesus, for choosing me for this. Thank you for trusting me enough to endure this. Uh, I'm young, but anyway, I know that has to be true, that this is a posture in which we are to walk out our faith and salvation. If we refuse to grow in this way, if we hold on to pettiness, and if we let a record-keeping attitude define our relationship with God, uh, not only will we fail to learn how to face up, reality, up to reality such as it is, but we'll also forget, I think, that even the things we do for God in his name, they too ought to be subject to this law of love, that our sacrificial works of service, the things we do actively for God, also must be rooted in humility and obedience for the sake of others not ourselves. Because that freaks me out to read Jesus saying that on the last day, many people will come and they'll say, hey, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I preach? Didn't I serve? And all this other stuff? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you evil doer. It's as if he's saying, that's great, but you and I both know who you really did all that for. And it's just true. We are often addicted to our sense of self-importance and our need to be needed. It seems pretty clear that a martyr complex is a really good way to go from being just petty to, and Jesus' own words, an evildoer. I was reminded this week yet again of um, Mary and Martha, two sisters who find themselves hosts to Jesus and a bunch of his friends. And while Martha's running around quite naturally trying to find some food for all these guys, what's Mary doing? Just sitting on her bum right in front of Jesus. And if you have any kind of heart at all, of course you're sympathizing with Martha. Like, yeah, get some help. What's the problem here? Lend a hand. And Jesus says something that just ought to actually blow our mind. Mary, he says, has chosen what is better. Martha You're worried about lots of things, but only one thing is needed. And what Mary has chosen won't be taken from her. What does that mean? What are we supposed to learn from this story? uh, Does Jesus want us sitting around on our bums, not actually doing anything for all these people who really need our service? Look at the world, Jesus. Aren't we supposed to be doing something about all this need? Well, dealing with that tension between serving and being served brings us to the third addition I would make to Smith's chapter. God is self-sacrificing, and Jesus is our sacrifice, by which I mean without him, without his sacrifice. Ours are nothing before God. Without Christ's ministry to us, for us, we are cut off from the life of God. And Smith puts the point rather well in that book where he says that there's a distinction between our working our way to God and God working his way to us in the servanthood of Jesus, coming to serve us, 
just like we read in Matthew when we began. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so, of course, we are invited to sacrifice for the sake of others in the name of God. Of course, we are being brought into the life of God and this divine movement of love, which surrenders all and can find that self-surrender joyful. But all of that begins and must continually be rooted in a posture of open receptivity. Somehow, we have to let the one who came to serve us, serve us. Jesus is our sacrifice before God, and we are brought to God through him. And at this point, to finish out the point, I want to read an important passage from the Gospel of John. Partly because that's what Smith suggests we do this week, is we read the Gospel of John in its entirety. We're not going to do that this morning. But I do want to read a section, um, which is pretty important. By the way, the reason Smith says we should read the Gospel of John is because of all the Gospels, John really offers a lot of insight about Jesus' relationship with his Father. Which is to say, John lets us in on how God, in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is self-sacrificing. In the way that Jesus puts it in John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. It's that inner drama of the Trinity that John depicts for us. But as we wrap up here today, what I want to do is emphasize this idea about our constantly being in a posture of receptivity by closing with this passage from John 13. Excuse me. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. This is a great detail. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything that he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning. So what does Jesus choose to do in this moment, in this moment, right before Passover, where he will literally give his flesh for the world in the new covenant? Jesus tells, or John tells us that this is what our Lord does. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water in a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. He took the form of a servant, and here in this moment, we see the active demonstration of what we read from Matthew. Where Jesus says, we're his followers, and if we are to be like him, we're going to be different. His followers aren't going to be like the officials and politics and powerful people who lord it over others. His followers are disciplined in the way of self-sacrifice. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. 
The reason we have to dwell here is because the question is always before us about whether we're willing to let Christ wash us, to let Jesus be our sacrifice, to submit ourselves to his ministry, his service, his washing. It's so much harder than it seems because we're not ready for this kind of discipleship. We would much rather transform Christ into some other kind of God. Like Peter, the one who had rightly declared Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When Christ comes to wash Peter's feet, we too say, no, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. It's going too far. It's not right for you. You're the Holy One. It's not right for you to stoop to this level like a slave doing the common dirty job. And our Lord responds to Peter with the tenderness of a parent, I think trying to speak with a four-year-old who lacks the maturity to fathom the depth of what's happening. Even here, Jesus squats down. He meets Peter. He says, you don't know what I'm doing, but you will understand. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. After washing their feet, he put on his robe and he sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, he says. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now that you know these things, God will bless you. And apart from such knowledge is what I'm trying to say, which like most knowledge that really matters, it's experiential. Apart from this knowledge, we don't know how to raise ourselves. We can't bring ourselves up in the way we should go. Any more than a houseplant can decide to water itself. In conclusion, this is heavy for me because it's just such a tender thing, isn't it? Uh, To think of Christ doing this and feet in the Gospels. Who knew? In conclusion, we should be so thankful that this gift of Christ's washing, his self-sacrifice, the cleansing flood, that it's something perpetually on offer and we can return to it again and again. In fact, it was really profound for me this year uh, right around Easter, because as you know, we, we entered the Catholic Church this year uh, at Easter. But leading up to that event on, on, during Holy Week, just like a lot of the church, the, we, the church follows the events of Christ's passion leading to his resurrection. And on Thursday of that week, Holy Thursday, they, do, um, uh, they, they celebrate when Christ actually gave the supper, this last meal, and then the priest reenacts this foot washing scene that we just read about from John 13. And um, uh, Father Gino came up to me the Sunday beforehand, and he, you know, he's a little Italian guy. It was right over here at St. Francis. And, um, and he said, hey, are you going to be here on Thursday? And I said, yeah, I plan to. And he said, okay, here's your number. I'm going to wash your feet and um, bring a clean pair of socks and preemptively wash them, would you? <laughs> I said, I said, 
Okay, it's symbolic, I guess. We're getting into the symbolism here. Yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wash them preemptively. Anyway, it shocked me that night. Anyway, like even thinking of that whenever he was coming up to me, like, yeah, I washed them for you, Gino. Like I still thought about it. It's, time seemed to fold on itself with these images from John 13 and, and here this man kneeling and he kissed my foot. You know, he wanted my foot clean partly because he wanted to know it was clean before he kissed it. But think, everything folded on itself for me, and it was actually really significant. I wouldn't count myself as someone who would always feel, you know, that way. But I, I, I felt the depth of my Lord kneeling before me to wash my feet. And it was, it was just magnified the next day because on Friday, Good Friday, as Christ goes to the cross... Uh, we were standing there with a bunch of other people, and they all get up, and they're, you know, they're, they're going to go forward. And, and after being soaked in Scripture on the crucifixion scene, you know, we read two chapters of Mark while you're standing. They sing it. And then um, everybody lines up, and they're going to walk forward to venerate the cross. Um, I remember seeing this uh, the year before and thinking it was kind of hokey. You know, it's like a... I don't know if it was real wood or not on the thing. I think it has to be real wood. But there's a wooden crucifix. People walk up, kiss it, do something to it. And, and this year, too, I felt this, this sense of, uh, oh, really? We're doing this now? But uh, just like, it was, it was very interesting to me because it was just like being a teenager and being in these backcountry Pentecostal churches, watching other people walk forward to get some sweaty traveling preacher to lay his hand on them. Uh, and then they felt, well, just like I too then got over myself, walked up and ended up on the floor. I got over myself and, and we came forward and uh, I kissed his feet, you know, uh, his bloodied feet. The feet of my Lord who had washed mine the night before. Just a piece of wood, badly painted. <laughs> but I went to meet my Lord, my God. Broken for me. It was to be trampled on by men that he was born into the world. And knowing full well that that's what we would do to him, he got up, took off his robe, put on a towel, and poured some water. Do we understand? What this example means? Then let our adoration never cease, and let's continue somehow to do for each other what he taught us in humility and obedience. And uh, uh, in John chapter 12, the chapter right before this, you, you see Mary showing up. And John includes this passage, that, uh, this little note. John doesn't describe the scene, but he says, this is the Mary who had washed his feet with her tears. And um, do we have a Bible in this church? I, I, I thought about this this morning during worship while Stephen and Karen were praying. I don't know how to reference it, but just as we're referencing, we're, we're wrapping up here. Okay, thanks. 
I don't know if this is a word for, for vineyards or not, but with all these feet going around, uh, I can't read this story calmly. But I don't know if it's for someone here individually or for the church as a, as a whole. I'm not sure, but I love you guys. You know that. And I just feel like someone will identify or the whole church as, as a whole. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. We just finished a dinner at which Jesus washed his disciples' feet. This is Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume, the fragrance that we sang about earlier. And she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus answered his thoughts. (laughs) Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus tells a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, he turned to her and said to Simon, look, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. And she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who sees us, and that through the eyes of your Son, you see us. Lord, I thank you that our sacrifices can be as tangible to you as that woman who kissed your feet wiping them with her hair. 
that you say many will come. And they're going to say, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you thirsty and give you water to drink? And you'll say, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Thank you, God, that you have somehow folded time so that we are made one with you. You've made us one with you. And I pray for this church, God, that its acts of service would rise to you like a sweet perfume, that the people who give here and give and give will know that you see them from the very least don't really know uh, how to close or wrap up. This wasn't the cl- conclusion I planned, but uh, just that song, too, of uh, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. What good will our crowns be but just to have more to kiss his feet with? We just praise you and we thank you, God, for your sacrifice for us. We love you. Pray that you'll help us. Help us to be more like you and to wash each other's feet. In Jesus' name, amen.